Why are you here? Not in the church building, but why are you here on earth? Why are you alive? What purpose does your life serve? Why are you alive in 2021 as opposed to some other time? Or in Houston as opposed to some other place? What is God's will for your life? These are really big questions, right? These are questions that we all ponder at various times. And today I think we're going to get some answers to these ultimate questions. And we're going to get them from Jesus himself in one of the most important passages in the Bible as we continue our study in the gospel according to Matthew. Now in recent weeks we've begun looking at the most famous sermon ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And to understand the Sermon on the Mount, we have to put it in its context within the Gospel of Matthew. We've got a Bible, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew tells us that Jesus began his ministry by declaring this message in chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus says something massively important has happened. This rebellious, fallen world has collided with God's kingdom, with the kingdom of heaven. God's reign has begun to burst through the darkness of this evil world in a new and direct way. God is beginning to fully recapture what is rightfully his. Now, of course, this won't be fully accomplished until the future, when God's kingdom comes in its fullness. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus could truly say this was beginning. God's kingdom had begun to burst forth into this world because the king had come. And Jesus himself is this king. And because the king has come, uh, Paul says in Acts 17, God now calls on everyone, everywhere, to repent, to turn from our lives of sin, and to cast ourselves upon Jesus. Entrusting ourselves to his deity, death, and resurrection. God's calling people to stop being his enemies, to stop being rebels, and then to instead become Jesus' disciples and subjects. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks to his disciples. And he explains how the appearing of God's kingdom is transformative. How Jesus' coming has opened a new understanding and relationship with God. How this should change our actions and our thinking and how we interact with other people. The Sermon on the Mount is critically important because it speaks to believers about how we live in light of the truth that Christ has come. And in our last two sermons in this book, we saw that Jesus began his sermon by pronouncing a series of blessings on believers. Believers live in an evil world, and that means our lives are not always pleasant. But despite that truth, Jesus says believers are presently blessed because we have a participation in God's kingdom. We have a relationship with God. And Jesus says beyond that, we will be blessed even more when, when God's kingdom comes in its fullness. And when we receive rewards for the difficulties we have faced throughout this life. And as Jesus blesses believers, he uses some very famous phrases that describes who believers are. He says that believers are the poor in spirit. We are totally dependent on the Lord. He says we are people who mourn our sin, that we are humble, that we intensely yearn for righteousness. Believers show mercy to others by forgiving those who wrong them and by doing charitable deeds. Believers are pure in heart, striving to live lives of moral integrity. Believers are peacemakers. 
And then Jesus rounds out his initial list of blessings by saying that believers are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. All these phrases describe believers, what, who God has made us to be in Christ, and what we should strive to live out. And so Jesus blesses believers. But now as we come to today's passage, Jesus does something else. Today he's going to begin to speak about the responsibilities of believers. And as he transitions to this new subject, there is a shift in the language that Jesus uses. You've got your Bible open to Matthew 5, you'll notice that in verses 3 through 10, Jesus speaks about believers in the third person, as they and those. But beginning in verse 11, he changes it up. He now speaks to believers in the second person. He says, you. He wants to bring home what he is saying. He wants us to feel the weight of his instruction. And so Jesus has pronounced blessings. He's going to give some responsibilities. But as we pick up today, we're going to be right in between those two sections in verses 11 and 12 at first. And verses 11 and 12 are similar to what has come before them, to the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 10, because they contain another blessing on believers. And the subject of this blessing is the same subject we saw in verse 10, which is persecution. And yet, verses 11 and 12 are also similar to what follows. Verses 13 and 16. Because in them, Jesus speaks about you and not them. So we're going to start off in verses 11 and 12, which are a transitional passage, including the blessings, and introducing and giving the background to the responsibilities that we're also going to look at today, which Jesus gives believers. So today we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 16. And today we're going to see three truths. First, Believers are those who suffer for Jesus' sake. Second, believers are to maintain their distinctive message and lifestyle despite the threat of persecution. And third, believers are to maintain a visible witness before the unbelieving world. Let's start with our first point, which is that believers are those who suffer for Jesus' sake. Matthew 5.10, Jesus blessed believers as being those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now he says in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now I wonder why would people want to persecute believers who are peacemakers and who are pure in heart and who show mercy? But if we wonder that, we wonder it because we have forgotten how evil this world truly is. So I've said this many times, friends. You know, this world is made up of many cultures. And although these cultures are all very different, they all agree on just one point. They are all opposed to the good news that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, that he died for our sins and that he has risen again. And why is that? Why is the only point of agreement between the secular West and communism and Islam and pre-industrial paganism, why do these things only agree in their opposition to the gospel? Because this world is in the grip of Satan, whom the Apostle Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world. Satan stands behind the architecture of politics and culture in every society. And Satan ensures that the institutions of every society oppose the gospel. Now, of course, this opposition looks different from place to place. But make no mistake, it is no accident that every society opposes Jesus. And Satan wields the levers of cultural and political power to strike at the people of God. Why? 
Well, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 3. The Thessalonian church was a very persecuted church, and Paul was worried about them, and he wrote to them. He says in his letter, he was concerned that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Paul was concerned that persecution had caused the Thessalonians to renounce their faith. That's what Satan's aim is in persecution. He wants to drive us to apostasy, to make us renounce our faith, which would show that we never have real faith to begin with. And that's what Satan wants. And in his campaign, tragically, Satan finds accomplices among the lost people of this world. Why? Well, we saw last, in our last sermon in, the, in this uh, book, 1 Peter chapter 4 tells us the reason why. He says, what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, with respect to these things, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Unbelievers unrepentantly give themselves to sin. That's their nature. That was, it used to be our nature, right? And as unbelievers indulge themselves, they don't want to feel shame. They don't want to realize the weight and enormity of their transgression. But when they encounter believers who don't live like they do, who won't join them in their evil doing, this draws attention to the fact that their conduct is wicked, and they don't want to feel wicked, and so they respond. Usually they start by trying to entice believers to participate with them in their evil. Why? Because if they can get believers to join with them in their sinful self-indulgence, unbelievers will think that they have found a reason to ignore the gospel. If we speak the gospel with our mouths, but deny it with our lives by living like unbelievers, then the unbelievers around us will say the gospel is a fraud. They'll say, my sin isn't really that bad. Look, even these Christians do it alongside me. Their Jesus isn't really that powerful. He has no power to liberate people from this sin, and so forth. Compromised Christians give unbelievers comfort in their unbelief. They give them an excuse to close their ears to the gospel. And so initially, unbelievers try to get believers to participate with them in their sin. But if they fail to entice believers into evil doing, if believers hold firm, then unbelievers escalate things. They will malign you, Peter says. They will lash out in words and sometimes in actions. In the parallel passage to Matthew chapter 5, Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. It doesn't sound fun, does it? Jesus says his people will be hated. That's a strong word. You know, what, what's hate? Hate's when people are watching you and they want to see you fall. They want to see you ruined. And if you fall, they will rejoice. That's hate. And that, that's how unbelievers feel about believers. That is a hard and painful thing to know, isn't it? There are people who are watching us, wanting to see us ruined. Second, Jesus says we will face exclusion. Believers lose things, right? We lose relationships that we want to maintain. We lose opportunities that we like to have. We lose social interactions that we'd like to enjoy. The world will deny us these things because of our faith. There is a high and painful cost that comes for following Jesus. Third, Jesus says, believers will be reviled. We will have our names spurned as evil. When unbelievers think about you, one of the first things that pops in their head is, what a bum. 
What an evildoer. What a bigot. Because you love Jesus. That's heavy, right? Back in our text, Matthew 5, Jesus further elaborates on the heavy price that believers pay for our allegiance to him. First, he says, people will revile you. We will suffer verbal abuse. People will curse you and me. And they will wish terrible things on us. And you find this same verb used in chapter 27. When Jesus is reviled while he hangs on the cross by his enemies. Second, Jesus says, people will persecute you. The verb here means something like pursue. In chapter 23, we'll find the same verb used to describe how the enemies of God chase the people of God from town to town. People pursue. They hunt Christians. They may want to hurt or kill us directly, or they may seek to use the apparatus of politics and law to hurt Christians. Believers will suffer harm, just as Jesus was persecuted. Remember, people want to throw him off a cliff. People want to stone him repeatedly. People made up false charges against him, and they wound up nailing him to a cross. Third, Jesus says people will utter all kinds of evil against you. People are going to say really terrible things about you. That happened to Jesus. In chapter 12, we're going to see people say of Jesus, he is empowered by Satan, or they're even going to call him Satan. In chapter 26, they're going to call him a blasphemer. They said terrible things about Jesus. But, and this is very important to what Jesus says here, these terrible things were all untrue. The evil that was ascribed to Jesus was false, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. Being maligned falsely. You know, in our society, people love to play the victim. They love to act like martyrs. And this often happens in evangelicalism, too, especially the way these verses are often used. I've seen online when powerful pastors fall or when powerful churches are exposed as having participated in sin. The supporters of these fallen folks often run out and they say, well, Jesus told us we'd be persecuted. That's why we're suffering so. But friends, our suffering is not persecutory if it's just. It's not persecutory if what they're saying about us is true. The Apostle Peter warned this in 1 Peter 4. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. Okay, so Jesus here is not talking about us getting a bad reputation because we act criminally or sinfully or irresponsibly. If we suffer for those things, we dare not claim we're suffering for Jesus. No, the suffering Jesus is talking about here is what he's called suffering for righteousness' sake in verse 10, which in verse 11 he says is on his account. This is suffering we endure because of our connection to and our proclamation of Jesus, his deity, his death, his resurrection, his gospel, his word. Jesus suffered because of his integrity and his true preaching. And friends, we too will suffer if we reflect him. First Peter 2 says, What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Jesus puts it more succinctly in John 15. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Persecution is part of our calling, believing friends. 
and it's not something we get to opt out of. Jesus' words are true. If you try to live for him, you will make enemies. I remember a number of years ago, shortly after I entered ministry, I remember having this, this moment of clarity while I was reading the Bible, and I thought, I don't have an enemy in the whole world. And from what I'm reading here, that should not be the case. And you know what? Things changed pretty quickly after that, and not because I incited anything. And I don't say that glibly. Persecution is a hard thing. Opposition is a hard thing. And sometimes it can come from the most painful and unexpected places. This hurts. I'm not talking about this glibly. And when the pain of opposition comes, what should we do? A few weeks ago, I was talking to a friend of mine. He is an Indian-American Christian. And we were talking about the persecution that believers are suffering in India right now at the hands of militant Hindus who have been stirred up by India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And my friend was saying, well, when the Hindus attack, Buddhists fight back. And the Muslims fight back. But the Christians just take it. And he was lamenting this. He said, why don't we fight back? If we fight, we'll look strong and they'll leave us alone. It may make good sense to us to want to return evil for evil when we receive some. Especially because we're Americans. General Patton once said, all Americans love to fight. All real Americans love the sting of battle. And I think he's right. When we sit for something hard, man, we want to come out swinging. I think that's bred into us in our society. But that is not what Jesus says. I reminded my friend, violent resistance is not what the earliest Christians did when the Romans came for them. Our world may say, take up arms and resist, but our Lord says later in this chapter, do not resist the one who is evil, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. So what should we do? Well, as we just read in 1 Peter, we are to endure. We're not to back down in the face of opposition. We are to continue living for Jesus. As Jesus said to the persecuted church at Smyrna in Revelation 2, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. But beyond enduring, as we keep reading in Matthew 5, we find that we're going to do something else in the face of persecution. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Now Jesus has just told us people are going to slander us, they're going to insult us, they're going to persecute us, and some of them may even try to kill us. And now he says be happy about it? Yes. In fact, these words for rejoicing are very strong. There is a jubilation in view here. In Luke 6 at this point, Jesus says, leap for joy. How can that be? How can the prospect of defamation and suffering and death give us joy? Well, it's not because we're masochists. It's not because we like to suffer. No, Jesus explains why we should be jubilant on the evil day when we face persecution. And he gives us two reasons. First, he says in verse 12, For your reward is great in heaven. The Bible sometimes talks about reasons that we should have assurance of our salvation. How do we know that we have truly believed? The Bible gives us many tests. Is our doctrine correct? Do we love other believers? Do we strive to live in obedience to the Lord? And here's another test. A sure way to know if you're saved, Jesus says. Have you suffered for him? If you have, you can be extremely happy. This is a reason to have assurance of your salvation. When you suffer for Jesus, you can know from that your reward in heaven is great. And that should make you rejoice. But the second reason Jesus gives us here for why we should rejoice is this. He says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In this rebellious world has always hated God and his people. In chapter 23, Jesus will say that went back to Cain and Abel. 
when Abel was killed for pleasing the Lord. The Old Testament prophets suffered. Isaiah and, Ze and Zechariah were murdered. Jeremiah was persecuted terribly. John the Baptist was arrested and killed for speaking the truth. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus' apostles were persecuted. The millions and millions of martyrs of the church age were persecuted. Friends, to belong to God is to suffer persecution. But when we suffer, we should be greatly encouraged. We should rejoice because it means we're in good company. We are in solidarity with all the people of God who have come before us. Our suffering shows we belong to God just as much as they did. It's a confirmation of our faith. You know, when we suffer, sometimes we may feel like we fail because the prosperity gospel rubs off, off on us to some degree. We all think, you know, if, if I'm following God, things will be rosy and cheerful for me, and if I'm having a hard time, it's because I failed some, in some way. Friends, that's not how it works. The people of God who came before us, they suffered not because they failed. It was because they were faithful. It was because they were effective, not because they were ineffective. And likewise, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, it's not because we failed. It's because we have passed the test. It's because we have been faithful to the Lord. And so we can rejoice, just like the apostles rejoiced, when they were beaten viciously. And they walked out singing and they said, God has counted us worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Christ. So suffering will come. That doesn't mean we should seek out persecution or martyrdom. We are not to be needlessly provocative. Friends, if we just live to serve and obey Jesus, trouble will find us. Because this world is hardened in opposition to the Lordship of Christ. And so everyday believers live in a serious tension. We live in hostile territory. We are in the world, and yet we serve a different sovereign and a different kingdom than unbelievers serve. We proclaim a different message than they do. Their message in the culture at large is do what thou wilt. Our message is repent and believe the gospel, which is a profoundly offensive message to unbelievers. Now think about this. I mean, you know, we come to a Bible church and hear this all the time, but think about this. Think about the first time you ever heard the gospel. You are a sinner. You are under the wrath of God, and there's nothing you can do about it except throw yourself at Jesus' feet. I mean, man, that is, that is a hard message for people to hear. It is an offensive message in our culture. But our different ideology leads us to live a different lifestyle, which reinforces the idea to the world of their own wickedness. We are a distinct people, and yet this distinctiveness draws the world's intense opposition. Jesus said in John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And this is hard to face. Sustaining our distinct message and our distinct lifestyle in the midst of the world's opposition is hard. And Jesus knows that in time, this difficulty will lead believers to face temptation. The temptation to compromise. And so it's no accident that immediately after telling us we'll face opposition, that Jesus warns us against compromise with the world. And that's what we see now in our second point. Believers are to maintain our distinctive message and lifestyle despite living in the midst of an evil world. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, salt was an immensely valuable part of life in the ancient world. Salt was used for lots of things. The other day we think about the salt shaker, but... That's not the main way people thought about salt in the ancient world. It's a flavor. No. Salt in the ancient world was a preservative for food. 
Hard as it may be for us to realize this, back then they didn't have refrigerators. And most people back then were not vegetarians. And yet they, they, so they ate meat. But you know, meat goes bad very quickly. Uh, it decays at a, a scary rate. I read an article about this this week. I'm never eating leftover pizza again. Meat decays quickly. And it becomes a breeding ground for bacteria like Salmonella and E. coli and Staphylococcus. They grow exponentially. Every 20 minutes, bacteria double in meat that's left out. So eating unpreserved meat is a recipe for disaster in your health. But salt preserves meat because salt dehydrates meat. And by sucking the water out of the meat, the salt denies bacteria a place to multiply. Moreover, salt purifies meat because the presence of salt causes bacteria to go into shock and die. So salt was really important to ancient people. And Jesus says in this fallen world, believing friends, you and I are the salt. Now, this metaphor may simply work on the level of flavor. Jesus may say this rotten, sinful world leaves a bad taste in our mouth, and only believers make it palatable. Maybe that's the point. But I think it's more powerful if we think about this in, in, in the, the way that ancient people would have thought about salt, as an agent of preservation and purification. You remember Genesis 18 when Abraham speaks to God about the fate of Sodom? And Abraham says to God, please spare the city. If there are 50 righteous people in the city, will you spare it? What would God say? Yes. And Abraham says, what about 45? And God says, I'll spare it. He says, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And God says, I'll spare it. And tragically, Abraham stopped praying at 10. And more tragically, Sodom did not have 10 righteous people. And the city was destroyed. But friends, God withholds judgment from places sometimes because of the presence of righteous people. I think sometimes we look at our world and we can see the abundance of sin and we can think, how is God not rained fire on us? How is there not fearsome judgment unleashed in this world? And sometimes there is. I think we've seen that in the last year. But do you ever wonder why isn't God's judgment worse? You read, when you read the Bible, you read about Sodom getting lit up. You read about the Great Tribulation, and you think our society is every bit as depraved as these societies. Why is God's hand seemingly stayed? But here I think we find a big part of the answer. Because God has people in the midst of this dark world who are about his business. And because his people are proclaiming the gospel, unbelievers are being saved. The kingdom of God is advancing. This world is being purified one person at a time. Evil reigns, but the gospel still goes forth. And so believers here proclaiming the gospel function as a preservative for this world. We're not preserving the world's evil. But I think we are a reason God withholds severe forms of judgment from this world. Because he's patient, and he's giving us room to carry out the task he's given us. And by our execution of the Great Commission, Jesus is at work transforming people and over time transforming societies. I said a few months ago, if you want to see our wicked society change, the solution is not at the ballot box, it is in the Great Commission. Evangelism is the sole effective means God has given his people to transform our society. And as we do that, living our distinctive lifestyles, preaching our distinctive message, we are the salt of the earth. We are preserving and helping to purify those around us. But, Jesus says in verse 13, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
Most of our salt today comes from salt water. But in ancient Israel, salt largely came from marshes. And this salt often contained impurities, which would corrupt and destroy the distinctive properties of salt. And what was left behind was an inert, tasteless, rock-like substance. And Jesus says, if that happens, if salt becomes corrupted, how do you fix that? If meat starts to go bad, you can put salt on it as a preservative. If your preservative goes bad, what are you going to do? You can't do anything. It's a total loss. Bad salt doesn't flavor. It doesn't preserve. It doesn't purify. It's good for nothing. In fact, it's worse than that. Jesus says in Luke 14, 35, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. See, salt, even corrupt salt, has a really bad effect on soil. It prevents plants from growing. So you couldn't just throw it out like people threw stuff out in the ancient world. You couldn't throw it on the manure heap because that was going to be used for fertilizer and it would hurt the soil. See, bad salt isn't just worthless. It is counterproductive. It is destructive. It had to be disposed of in another way. Used as a building material for roofs and for roads. It has no other redeemable use. Now Jesus says, salt must not lose its saltiness. And the application is obvious. Believers are the salt of the earth. We who are to be distinctive in this world must not lose our distinctiveness. And I think there are two temptations this statement warns us against. The first is the temptation to compromise our distinctive lifestyle. In 1 Peter 1 we read, Be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's how we are to live, believing friends. And as we said earlier, our distinctive holiness ought to cause unbelievers to be surprised when we do not join them in their flood of debauchery. But you don't have to live very long on your own to realize it is tough to maintain your distinctiveness, right? The world wants us to blend in. Our unbelieving friends want to get drunk with us. They want to gossip with us. Our boss wants us to defraud our customers. or to take out clients to places that believers ought not go. And eventually we may begin to compromise. We may begin to adopt the world's values and attitudes. We may be, begin to think, well, everybody cheats on their taxes. Not a big deal. Everybody has an affair. God is gracious after all, and he wants me to be happy. How often have those words led people to terrible shipwreck? And at the core, people just want to compromise with the world because the pursuit of holiness is so demanding and because it raises the scorn and opposition of unbelievers. But when we compromise our holiness before unbelievers around us, we destroy our testimony. Because our compromising conduct speaks to unbelievers. And it tells them the gospel is not as glorious as we say it is. That Jesus is not powerful over sin. That sin isn't really that bad. And if by our compromise with the world we lose our saltiness, the integrity of our witness, how do you ever get that back? When we become a living example to unbelievers who know us, in our families, or at work, that sin is not to be shunned, and that the gospel isn't to be believed, how does it ever get overcome? Think of Lot. An angel came and told him, Sodom's going to be destroyed. And Lot said, I've got to go tell my sons-in-law. And he warned them, and what happened? They laughed at him. He had no credibility anymore. And friends, if we lose the credibility of our witness, Jesus says here, you won't get it back with the crowd that you've lost it before. 
soul can't have its holiness restored. See, sometimes, even though we enjoy the forgiveness of God, the consequences of our sin remain in this world. And this is one of those areas. The damage we do to our testimony before unbelievers remains. And the tragic thing is, when we harm our testimony, it's not just that we become spiritually neutral. We become counterproductive to the cause of Christ. We become harmful. We become the excuse by which other people rationalize their unbelief. And as Jesus says here, they trample on us. The same verb will be used in chapter 7 to describe what the pigs do to the pearls which are cast before swine. Compromised believers cause the gospel and the people of God to be held up to scorn and derision by unbelievers. And so, friends, we must watch how we live and comport ourselves around unbelievers. Because our conduct speaks to unbelievers about the reality of our faith. We must maintain our witness and if we don't, that's one way we can stop being salty. A second way that we can become unsalty is compromising not our lifestyle, but our message. It, the gospel is controversial. And the world hates to hear about the evil of sin and the salvific death and resurrection of Jesus. And because of the controversy of our message and the resistance that it meets, Sometimes people begin to imagine that if we could just make the message seem less unpleasant, that they'll lay off us. Maybe it will attract unbelievers if we don't talk about sin so much. If we water down the truth about God's wrath. If we say, well, there are many roads to God. This is just one of them. Tragically, there are many examples of this, aren't there? Mainline Protestant denominations in the West have for decades compromised the truth of God's word. I don't even talk about what Catholicism has done. Many mainline denominations have denied the need for repentant faith in Jesus as the sole ground for salvation for over 50 years. They've denied the danger of sin. They've denied that God's word defines legitimate sexual expression as only happening within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. And even more tragically, in recent years now, evangelicals seem to be teetering on these very same points. Max Licato, who is a celebrated evangelical writer, apologized last month because in the past he had preached that homosexuality was a sin. He wrote an open letter saying that his previous statements required the forgiveness of Jesus. He's not alone in this compromise because there is intense pressure from our society on this issue. And we compromise because we are afraid to bear society's scorn and we are afraid to be reviled and slandered for Jesus. Here's another example. Church in the Dallas area got a lot of press recently because they split. The reason they split was their pastor decided the main focus of his ministry needed to be combating Islamophobia. And so he started partnering his churches and his church with Islamic ministries in the DFW area because he doesn't want to be seen as intolerant. And so he decided to compromise on the truth that not all religions are the same. Or the other way around. He decided to compromise on the truth that all religions are not the same. That there's only one way to the Father, which is through Jesus. He has denied the truth of 2 Corinthians 6, that light can have no fellowship with darkness. Amen. These folks think that by watering down the gospel and its offensiveness, that somehow that's going to make Jesus more palatable to unbelievers, and somehow we're going to get them saved. But friends, you're never going to win somebody to Jesus if you deny the words of Jesus. You're never going to see someone saved if you let the world dictate the contents of our evangelism rather than the Bible. 
We have forgotten the warning, James 4, 4, which says friendship with the world is enmity with God. And if we compromise our message, if we won't call sin, sin, if we won't point people to Jesus as their only hope, what good are we doing? Amen. We become unsolely salt. And in fact, in the name of avoiding personal trouble, we have become actually harmful to the people we're claiming to serve. Because we are stumbling them further away from the one and only hope that they can have, which is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So yes, this world will oppose us, but we should not respond to that by trying to curry the world's favor. By compromising our personal holiness or on the gospel. Jesus tells us our responsibility is to maintain our distinctiveness. Even though by doing that, we will face opposition. All right, coming to our last point, in which we see that believers are to maintain a visible witness before the world. We've seen that this world will persecute us. We've seen that nevertheless we are called to live a distinctive life. How do we go about being distinctive while this world rages at us? I think sometimes believers have navigated this situation by falling into one of two traps. First, we may take seriously the fact that Jesus calls us to live a distinctive life. But we may also be unwilling to face the pain and hostility that comes from the rejection of the world and from unbelievers. And so what we decide is, how, how, we, how we decide to navigate these two problems, is we decide that our faith is just a private matter. I'm not going to talk about my faith with other people. I'm not going to publicize that I'm a Christian. I'm going to retreat into myself. I'm not really going to socialize with unbelievers unless they're related to me. And we rationalize that at the end of the day by saying, well, Jesus is more interested in my personal holiness that he is in my obedience to the Great Commission. We decide that Jesus is happy with 50%. And we reduce the faith down to, well, I read my Bible and prayed today. A second trap, which is like unto this first one, is we decide that interacting with the world necessarily means we will be corrupted by the world. Christians who fall into this trap have learned that we need to maintain our distinctiveness. And we look at the world and we see its hardness of heart towards the gospel. And we decide, well, the Great Commission just isn't worth it. The world has made its choice. And we fear that if we meaningfully try to engage with the world, they will taint us. Because we have forgotten the truth. That through the power of Christ and by his Holy Spirit, we can live in this world in a way that maintains our gospel witness and our integrity. And so Christians give up on the Great Commission and say, well, I'm just going to try to preserve myself and limit the damage that the world can do to me. And so Christians as a whole decide they're going to withdraw from society as a group. Now friends, this approach is an ancient one. This is the approach medieval people took when they decided they wanted to become monks and nuns and withdraw from society at large. And this is the approach many evangelicals have taken today, as we have basically tried to develop a parallel society. You know, the world has its institutions, government, public schools, worldly entertainment, now Christians have their own parallel institutions. We have celebrity pastors and megachurches. Originally, there were private Christian schools. In many corners, this has now been replaced by homeschooling. We've got Christian bands, Christian movies, Christian novels. We have tried to build a culture that has everything that the world has, but without having to be around those dirty sinners out there. Forgetting that the real problem is the inescapable evil which is in our own hearts. I often warn you that there is great danger that comes from taking one set of verses and trying to turn them against the rest of the Bible. And that's basically what this approach has done. It has taken the verses about our holiness 
and distinctiveness and try to set them against the Great Commission. But how will we reach the world with the gospel if we withdraw from the world? Now, of course, I've got to put some caveats down. Parents, you should school your kids in whatever way seems most biblical and wisest to you in a way that will help your kids learn what they need to learn. But a caution. Don't imagine that you can build a hermetically sealed kingdom that protects your children from the world forever. If you are drawn to that idea, I would strongly counsel you to reflect on the story of King Joash in 2 Chronicles 24. Joash seemed to be very godly until his guardian died, and then as soon as he was on his own, he fell into all manner of sin and disaster. Friends, your children will encounter the world someday. It is unavoidable. And how many times have we seen kids who were sheltered get their first taste of the world and immediately make a shipwreck of their lives because they didn't know how to face what was out there? Beware of thinking that retreat from our sinful world is a viable solution. But yes, we should be wary when we interact with the world because the world does want to entice us to join with them in their sinful revelry. They do want us to destroy our testimony. They do want us to become apostate. Of course the world is a dangerous place. Of course the world wants to influence us. But friends, Jesus has not called us to the safety of monastic isolation. He has caused us to face the dangers of this world by faith. And why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God deeply cares about the lost. I believe in friends, you and I are the people God has entrusted this mission to. We are to make this declaration of God's offer of eternal life through Christ to our unbelieving friends and neighbors and co-workers. And if we don't do this, who will? You want to know why you exist? This is why you're here. Believer, you were created to be God's special possession, to live and reign in his presence forever. But you were created to live in this world also. And while you're here, you're to be God's ambassador, living in this particular place, at this particular time, with the contact list that you have, so that you can represent Jesus to those folks. Friends, God deeply cares about winning the lost. Tragically, modern Christians often care about this a lot less than Jesus does. Sometimes it seems that we're so glad and thankful that Jesus has pulled us onto his lifeboat that we just stop caring about helping anybody else get into the boat. But our calling is not to figure out a way to maintain a persecution-free, happy, isolated life. God intends for us to go out and rescue people. And if you have questions about that, read the last five verses of the book of Jude. Read the last two verses of the book of James. God wants us to be his people on this mission. And praise God that he calls people to do this. Because if people didn't give the gospel out, you and I would be lost if no one had ever given us the gospel, right? That's right. And yes, God cares about your personal holiness. Yes, Jesus wants you to maintain your distinctiveness. But those callings are never in contradiction to the Great Commission. And that's what we see now in the last verses of our passage. Verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. We talked about this passage a few weeks ago in chapter 4. Where Jesus' ministry was described like this. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, and then a light has dawned. The beginning of Jesus' work in Galilee was like a light shining forth in the darkness. See the same idea in John's gospel. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus says plainly in John 8, I am the light of the world. 
Jesus is the light of the world. He is bright hope in this present darkness. He is light in the face of the shadow of death. But now here in chapter 5, Jesus says that we believers are likewise the light of the world. Not that we shine forth our own glory and goodness, but we are to shine forth Jesus' light. We are to reflect him to those around us as lights shining in the darkness. Listen carefully to what Jesus says next in verse 14. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. If you build a city and you want to hide it, guess where you don't build it? You don't build it on a hill where everyone can see it. Or you build it under the hill. Or you build it in a forest somewhere. You don't build it in the most conspicuous place possible. Verse 15. Nor do people like the lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Remember this winter storm we just went through? When the power was out and it was night? How dark was it? Now imagine you're there and you pull out a flashlight and everybody in your house is happy because they can see. And now imagine you decide the best thing to do with your flashlight is stick it under a pillow. That would be pretty dumb, right? What's the point of having a light if you're just going to bury it? That's Jesus' point exactly. It's self-defeating. Jesus is the gospel's light, these things. It's like the city on a hill. It's supposed to be conspicuous. It's like a lamp shining in the darkness. It's meant to be seen. God intends the gospel to be publicly, visibly seen. There's a great line in the book of Acts in which Paul's on trial. And he's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he says, this has not been done in a corner. The gospel is not some secretive cover-up thing that other people weren't supposed to know about. It is an open, public, visible thing. And our faith, our belief in the gospel is the same way. It is to be a call to the world to come and believe. Now, to be sure, in chapter 6, Jesus will warn us about how we practice our faith in public. We don't want to be like the Pharisees who are publicly religious just to get other people to say, oh, how holy she is, how holy he is. No. But neither are we to bury our faith within ourselves or only within the church to reveal our own life. Moreover, friends, please note that I'm talking explicitly here about the gospel and our faith. I'm not talking about us being publicly visible, say, on social media, by posting stuff about the pandemic or our favorite politicians or our schooling choice of preference, or abortion, and pretending that is sharing our faith. Now, it's okay to have views on those things, and it's okay to share them. But none of those things are the gospel. And we've got to remember that ultimately the Great Commission is not about us engaging in political or social advocacy. It's about us proclaiming the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus for sin. This is our first and clearest and loudest advocacy. It must be. The gospel is not something we hide from the world. It is something we must put on display so that those who need it see it. And it is sin of the most grievous kind to take what God means to be publicly seen and hide it. The gospel must go forth. And how? Well, verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Friends, we're to let our light shine. That's why we're here, to shine the light of the gospel of Christ to unbelievers around us. We are not to conceal our light inwardly or reveal it only around other like-minded Christians. We must let the light of the gospel be seen in our words, but also know what Jesus says here, in our deeds. Now, unfortunately, when we talk about good deeds in church, 
people usually start shifting uncomfortably in our seats. Because we love the wonderful truth that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from good works on our part. But sometimes confessing Protestants take that truth so far that we forget the Bible does talk about good works. Not as the basis of our salvation, but as the result of our salvation. We forget that the book of James tells us that faith, if it is by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. A faith that produces nothing in our life is not real faith. Listen to these wonderful verses that proclaim the truth of salvation by faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen, right? But listen to the next verse. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You're not saved by your works, but you've been created to do good works. Works that come after our salvation. Works that we do in Christ. God has ordained these works for us. That is why we are here. And why are we to do these works? That they, that unbelievers, may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now what kind of deeds is Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus just gave us a list of traits that should define believers. We're to be poor in spirit. We are to mourn sin. We are to be meek. We are to live righteously and obediently to the Lord. We are to show mercy, helping the poor. We are to forgive those who wrong us. We are to pursue purity of heart. We are to make peace. And when we are persecuted, we don't retaliate. We rejoice. And as we do these things, Jesus gives us some great news. Great news that we often forget in our scramble to withdraw from the world. Yes, the world hates the gospel. Yes, unbelievers generally hate believers when we talk about the faith. But when you and I proclaim the gospel and live lives of good works, sometimes, quite often in fact, unbelievers have a change of mind. They stop hating God. They start glorifying God. They see the light of the gospel and they believe. I think one of the main reasons Christians in recent decades have been so quick to withdraw from the world and build a parallel society is we have forgotten that there really is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save. Probably the dumbest conversation I ever had in the whole course of my ministry was with a fellow who believed he was an expert in church growth. And he told me with a straight face that we needed to abandon the idea that evangelism is a church growth strategy. He said we need to focus on transfer growth by which he meant stealing people from other churches. <laughs> and the news for you and for him, evangelism is the only church growth strategy Jesus has given us. It is our calling. It's our marching orders. We are publicly maintained a proclamation of the gospel which is backed up by a life consistent with the gospel. A distinctive life of holiness and good works. And yes, I know we'll never do it perfectly. But friends, we've got to try. We've got to strive. We are to shine forth. We are to be visible. Not only by talking about the social issues that we get excited about. We are first and foremost to proclaim this idea. May this be an idea we get excited about. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And as we say that, we will suffer. We will pay a high cost. But we will see people come to Christ. We will see life transform. And in the end, we'll hear well done, good and faithful servant. So believing friends, if you want to understand your purpose in life, it's this. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. 